It's Monday the 17th of January 2022. My name's Alex Elliott and you're listening to The Week in Iceland, the programme that asks what's been happening in Iceland this week, why it happened and why we should care. My guest this week is the linguist and lecturer of Icelandic, Jón Simon Markusson. Welcome to you. You alright? <laughs> alright. <laughs> um, this week has, even more than other recent weeks, been all about Covid, uh, with the restrictions first extended and then tightened significantly just three days later. The outbreak is panning out to be closer to the optimistic forecast than the pessimistic one, however, and the Health Minister still hopes to start going in the other direction from the 2nd of February. We'll have to wait and see on that one. In other news, Inga Sailan's bill to ban the blood mare industry is open for consultation and has received support and opposition, including from some perhaps surprising sources. The Men's Handball European Championships are underway and Iceland started with two victories against Portugal and the Netherlands and are now on top of the group ahead of tomorrow's game against the hosts Hungary. The weather this weekend has caused avalanches to close two roads in the Westfields and added new heat to the calls for a road tunnel on safety grounds. Denmark is not pulling its weight uh, when it comes to preserving and researching the old Icelandic manuscripts and should send more of them home, according to one government minister, Lilja Alfredsdottir. And finally, a family in Akureyri have been tending the grave of a Norwegian stranger for 86 years, all after one woman had a particularly vivid dream. Where would you like to begin? Well, COVID, I suppose. Yeah, I mean, like is a, <laughs> a stretch. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, we've been talking about COVID for two years now. This week, it's unavoidable. We're back to a 10-person assembly limit. Yeah. Um, I was just uh, learning about the consequences for this uh, new legislation or, or the new limit on um, uh, teaching spaces at the university. Um, so I haven't actually read the emails yet. Uh, I'm wondering what we're going to have to do. We might have to encourage more students to join us over Zoom, more distance teaching and stuff like that, which is all right if you don't like leaving your leaving your house. But, um, you know, it's probably not good for students, particularly students in the first year stuck at home and, and uh, with no social outlet. It's quite different this time to last time, though. I think people were forced to be at home for extended periods. Now, the universities and all other educational establishments are open uh, that's been controversial yeah. itself, hasn't it? It has, yeah. I mean, I'll continue to, to teach on site and uh, I'll encourage students to turn up. Uh, to, it, it could just become slightly awkward because um, if I say that students are welcome to turn up, uh, but they're also, uh, you know, if they don't trust themselves to, or if they don't, if, they, if, if they're frightened of getting, getting uh, COVID, then um, they can stay at home. Then you don't know how many people are going to turn up uh, to the classroom. Uh, and uh, it's just a bit of a puzzle. What's it like from a teaching point of view? Is it a lot harder when you've got a sort of hybrid, some people there, some people not, than having all all one or the other? Not anymore, it's not. I mean, Zoom is pretty much, you know, all teachers were, were, were forced to to reconcile themselves with these different, this different software for, for teaching uh, from a distance. And now it's not a, it's not a problem anymore. You know, students at home can... Uh, they can see the material that I'm, I'm teaching in real time, uh, as well as listen to my um, golden tones, and uh, it's not no, it's not it's not really much of a problem. Uh, I just think it's you know I think we all miss uh, teaching on site, and from a teacher's perspective, it's not such a big deal at all because if I you know if I have to be at home, I'm kind of settled in Iceland, been in Iceland for a long time, 
I've got a partner, I've got dogs, cats, I've got my life in Iceland. But for a lot of the first year students that have just arrived, that have been living under certain restrictions anyway, um, you know, there have been certain constraints on their ability to make friends. I think it's a lot more difficult from the student perspective, really, particularly the perspective of first year students. And the first year students that came last year kind of knew what they were getting into. I think perhaps the first year students this year assumed we'd be over all this by now. Yeah, probably. Um, luckily, there are more. There's more student housing on site at the university now, so you know students are actually living in the same halls of residence together. Um, so at least they've got each other. If if you know if 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 the situation should become even worse and and there's like a uh, some kind of any kind any form of lockdown or, or whatever you know they're, they're kind of in there they've they've got their ready made bubble in their student housing. Um, but yeah, I think the students are. And, and the teachers, you know, all of us basically in, in society, we're just in a bit of limbo at the moment. We don't know where it's going to go. I'm going to try and goad you into a strong opinion on this one because the forecasts are sort of... <laughs> the people, the number of people being put into hospital is is unsustainably high, but it is towards the lower end of what they were expecting at this time. And other countries are not generally going in the direction of harder rules. Why have we done this, and, and, and what do you think about that? Why have we done it? Um, well, I mean, maybe that's not the right... We know why we've done it, but what's, how does it sit with you? In, well, anything to protect the health service uh, is justifiable, in, in my eyes. Um, there was, uh, I can't remember what his name was, but there was an interview on the news uh, like a week ago, or around a week ago, of someone saying that there'd never been so much pressure on the on the health services now, uh, particularly because of the um, the number of, of, of COVID patients or people looking for for care due to COVID, anything to protect uh, the health service, anything to make sure it doesn't overrun, and also anything to give the people working in the health service a break, um, because you know we talk about about we talk about our difficulties from our perspective. Imagine having worked in the health service since to you know. The last few years, uh, and they need an holiday. Uh, they need all the help they can get, I think. Um, so whatever the reasons are, as long as it benefits the people working in the health service uh, and helps us to sustain some kind of care, then then I'll do what it takes. I'll do my part, and I think everyone else should. Yeah, and... Hopefully it's a moot point. Maybe, fingers crossed, we're coming to the end of the, the pandemic now. Um, certainly <clears throat> the infection rate's basically been out of control. So there's not an enormous amount that we can do on a day-to-day -day basis there. Um, <clears throat> but it is still causing great economic damage. Um, that's another one. Like Obviously the hospitality trade, the bars and, and things, they're um, in trouble, to say the least. Well, the government has to step in. Uh, there's no excuse for not supporting uh, small businesses there's no excuse for letting bars and, and, and restaurants go under um, it, you know it, of course it's inevitable sometimes that, that these places have to close if we want to I mean it, you know Thorolvur and other uh, virologists and I think he's a virologist right he's the chief epidemiologist yeah epidemiologist yeah, yeah. you know they've been asked by the government basically mm. to, to answer one particular question, which is, how do we stop uh, infection rates climbing to un unreasonable, 
heights, right? Um, and of course, closing bars and restaurants is one way to, to stop that. Um, and because it's necessary, you know, if Iceland wants to, an economic recovery, or if the government want uh, the country to recover economically, then it needs to support bar owners, uh, people that work in bars. It needs to support restaurant restaurateurs and restaurant staff, um, and people working in the in the uh, tourist industry. You know, souvenir shops and stuff like that. People need to be protected um, because it will be the economic recovery would be a lot worse if all of these people working in these industries lose their jobs. So the government needs to, to step in and and support mm. and compensate for any any damages, loss of earnings and stuff like that. I mean, these are people's lives as well, you know. You, you don't want to save lives by ruining people's lives, you know. Yeah, that's a really good point. And it's something that they did, I believe, at least try to address in in, in the past. Yeah. Um, but those measures have run out. They're not in place anymore. So there's a, there's calls to bring them back for the even if this is just a three week period, it's still potentially damaging enough. Um, they've already promised that the first, what is it, the, the insurance and the tax brackets or something for the bars uh, will be postponed, mm. which is a start. But that's not cancelled. So it's, uh, the money's still got to go somewhere. Of course it has. Look, the government needs to step in, all right, and they need to compensate. They need to provide for these people. Um, I speak as a staunch communist, a blood-red communist. Uh, the government needs to step in, put, it, put its arms around the people and, and look after them. I sound like Boris Johnson. <laughs> um, <laughs> Who is also famously a communist. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Don't mention him to me. Um, yeah, and obviously it's not just the directly affected sectors that are affected. I mean, it, it filters through to, to all different parts of society, and not to mention just how many people are off work and school in isolation and quarantine at the moment. I mean, I think we all know a handful of people, at least, who are right now and not, not at work, and that's a massive impact. <clears throat> yeah, definitely. Um, I mean, we've also, at the university, at least, I, I know other colleagues have as well, but I've, I've sent emails out to my students saying that at any point during the term, any one of, the student, any one of our numbers could be um, put into quarantine or isolation, or, you know, whether that's one student, a group of students, the entire class, plus the teacher. Um, yeah, this could happen to to absolutely anybody. Um, I think it would be a nice gesture, or a necessary gesture for the government um, to step in and say, if this happens, we will we'll, we'll catch you when you fall. It has to. It, otherwise, it's irresponsible. And. The mental health crisis that comes with the physical health crisis, if you will, is is just as big as, as has been pointed out a lot of the time. And economic factors play into that hugely. Of course, um, the 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 anxiety that must follow the the the, the possibility that your business is going to close or that your you know your life is going to change. You're not going to be able to pay, pay bills, or or you might have to completely replan or reschedule your life. Mm. Um, is maybe not avoidable, but um, it's something that uh, the government could ease. I think they could they could step in and, and make sure the fall is as comfortable as possible uh, for people. 
Okay, uh, just before we move on, what would be where, where's your money going? What would be your bet on on what happens next? Are we going to see a you know rapidly brightening picture as as people hope? Well, I think the whenever uh, the government enacts measures to reduce um, the number of infections, the number the number decreases. So I think the numbers will go down with these new measures, definitely. Um, which is a start, but as to what happens, I don't know. I mean, I I, I know absolutely nothing about uh, the about epidemics, about virology, the nature of viruses, how they mutate. Um, so my kind of uh, what would I say? My 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 way of doing my part has been trusting the vast majority of people that do know better than me, and and following their instructions and that's something that iceland has generally done pretty well it is yeah i mean i know some people that uh, are kind of conspiratorially minded um and think this is a this is an attempt to to curb uh or, or, or it's an attempt to cap crowd control and, and kind of rubbish you know but um i think most people are you know the majority of us don't know about epidemics and we don't know about virology we don't know the nature of viruses so we have to defer uh to the knowledge of of of, of specialists in this area it's not nice i don't like that i can't go and meet my friends in a pub um i don't like that i have to you know uh be worried about going to dinner parties but we it's something that we we have to do and all indications are that the virus is here to stay now. Um, so we are going to have to blend back into normal life somehow. Yeah. And maybe this huge explosion of Omicron is just what we need. And maybe it's all going to go in the right direction very quickly. That's certainly what some other countries are hoping. Yeah, I hope it does. Um, uh, and I don't see why it wouldn't. I reckon the virus is probably here to stay now. You know, I speak as a as a linguist, someone who I've said knows nothing about the nature of viruses, but it wouldn't surprise me if it's here to stay. And um, if we can uh, shift gears in back into normal life, ease ourselves back into normal life and just live with it, that would be wonderful. And it would also prove the conspiracy theorists wrong. You know, we reckon that the, the government wants to curb freedoms and, and, and stuff like that. Um as soon as it's possible, I'm sure that everything will open up again and, and we'll get back to, to normal. On that note, um, let's move on to a different topic. Um, what stands out to you? Uh, well, I think we should talk about Icelandic manuscripts, Icelandic cultural heritage. Mm. Um, yeah, what's the background to it, just briefly? <clears throat> oh, well, I mean, the the the, uh, the Ardnum, uh, what is it called, the Ardnumagnaia... Uh, institute oh, in English, I think it's Arna Magnaean, isn't it? Arna Magnaean, yeah, whatever. <laughs> uh, in Copenhagen, uh, is currently as in storing um, and looking after uh, Icelandic manuscripts. And um, there's, of course, a, a prolific team of people researching there, uh, both um, what do you call it, uh, like full time uh, academics researching the manuscripts and their doctoral students research students postdocs um so the justification i think is that you know there's a lot of people there that are very interested in the manuscripts that are actively researching uh, their manuscripts and that it's a good place to uh, you know the, the storage facilities there their capacity and and uh, it, it's a good place to store the manuscripts as well which i don't doubt but 
um, at the end of the day, this is Icelandic cultural heritage. The manuscripts were taken from Iceland uh, to Copenhagen, and I know there was an agreement signed in the eighties, some some sometime, you know, to say that they would they would be stored in Copenhagen. But things have changed since then. Attitudes towards the repat uh, repatriation of, of uh, artifacts um, have changed because of debate in that area, you know, um, and I think that. As long as the the Arne Magnusson Institute in Iceland in Reykjavik can uh, store the manuscripts um, uh, as well as, as as the institute in Copenhagen can, um, they should be sent back, and the Icelandic government and other research funding bodies should pay for more research to be done in Iceland. You know, it doesn't just have to be uh, Icelandic scholars that are uh, that are full time. At the institute in Reykjavik, you know, these these manuscripts attract research students, uh, postdocs from all over the world. Um, so the argument that there are more people in Copenhagen that can uh, that, that can perform research on the manuscripts, I think, is a a bit of a red herring. Uh, yeah. And the two things that are playing into this story now, this week specifically, is um, uh, Lilia Antresdottir, Government Minister for Culture, or at least was, I'm not... The dust hasn't still quite settled on the new ministries. Um, mm. but Culture Minister Lilia Antresdottir says that Denmark hasn't been doing enough to keep up with its side of that agreement. <clears throat> so not only is Iceland building this new house of Icelandic studies and, and creating wonderful facilities that could house them, but she thinks Denmark isn't doing enough on the other side of that agreement. Well, I know that uh, Denmark has, has um, from what I remember, a couple of years ago, stopped uh, teaching Icelandic language, stopped teaching old Icelandic as well. Um, and so they, you know, that that's not an encouraging development. Um, if you argue that you are uh, the better facility uh, and the more suited facility to store these manuscripts and to uh, conduct research in the, into the manuscripts, then then show it. You know, actions speak louder than words. Don't stop teaching Icelandic. You know, the University of Iceland is committed to um, teaching, to the study of, to the research of the Icelandic language at all uh, phases of its history, uh, in all facets um, of its manifestation in, in you know manuscript form, uh, in, in ancient vellum manuscript form in modern the form of modern literature um and iceland has put its money where its mouth is it's doing that research it's teaching the language um uh, if copenhagen is, is taking a step back from from that i think that's a, a very unhealthy development and 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 the period of time that you're talking about old icelandic uh, it was very similar to danish at the time anyway no um yeah, well, it, yeah. I mean, at the earliest stages, uh, there would have been much mutual intelligibility across the uh, Scandinavian um, uh, speaking peoples. But yeah, uh, although you know that's they split. I mean, Danish and Swedish are considered East Norwegian, uh, East sorry, East <laughs> Scandinavian languages or East Nordic languages. We have Norwegian uh, dialects, Faroese, Icelandic, and the now extinct Norn languages of Orkney and Shetland, constituting the West um, Nordic languages. But at the earlier stages, yeah, there was there was high mutual intelligibility. 
definitely. But I, I, it doesn't matter. These manuscripts were taken from Iceland. Mm. Now, you mentioned Norwegian. Um, so maybe bring in the Norway, the Norway link to this as well, because another element of this story is that Norway asked to have some of these manuscripts on a long-term loan from Denmark and were rejected, mm. just as Iceland is. Um, so that was a part of the story as well. And it seems to be connected to this fear of having to repatriate um, yeah. artifacts. Yeah. Who do they think they are? <laughs> Who do they think they are? Huh? What is their problem, is what I say. If if Norway wants these these things on a loan, they should Norway should get it. They should get them. Of course, Denmark's put a lot of time and money into preserving them up until now, so that's an care. argument. I don't care. Norway would do the same thing, right? They're not going to go to Norway and then you know people are not going to start rolling cigarettes with 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 pages from a thousand year old manuscripts. You know, it's not that's not what they're going to do. They're going to research them. Um, it, will, it will benefit students. It will benefit uh, debate. Um, it will it will introduce the contents and and of the manuscripts. It will it will introduce studies into the construction of manuscripts to a wider group of people. Copenhagen seems to just want a monopoly, uh, a stranglehold on, on on the manuscript, the Icelandic manuscripts that they've kept, and I don't think they have a right to that stranglehold. Okay. Just a hypothetical question before we maybe move on there. Um, for the study of the field as a whole, would it be better for all of the manuscripts to be in one place, whether that's Copenhagen or, or, or Berlin or anywhere? Um, or, or is this kind of the spread of... Because some of them are here already, mm. and some of them are in Copenhagen, and they're all being studied and, and, and maintained. Is that a good in its own way? That they are distributed across different places? Well, different people, exactly, yeah. Different researchers... I mean, it's it, it's not a bad thing if if everyone's on an equal footing. Um, but basically, I support the. I understand the argument that these are artifacts of great significance for Icelandic cultural heritage. They were taken from Iceland. I think they should be returned to Iceland, uh, and that's not to say that they're not. You know, people beyond Iceland will not have access to to the manuscripts. Um, they could be sent on a loan to different research institutes. Um, I just think they should come back. And finally, finally, how much of this is sabre-rattling because we've got this expensive, new, wonderful house and there's fears of not having enough stuff to put in it? I think that's a red herring as well. Rubbish. OK. Um, right, we've got a little bit of time left. So what other topic would you like to talk about? Uh, I know you're a huge handball fan. <laughs> no thanks. <laughs> um, Westfjord's transport links. Uh, there's the the family in Akureyri. Uh, blood mares. Uh, blood mares, maybe. Um, yeah, it's a. Uh, I'm in a bit of a quandary about it, to be honest. Although I'm not. At the same time, I'm not at all. Um, I don't think. Uh, you know. I mean, facilitating. A greater fertility um, for so that pigs can have more piglets and then produce more bacon. You know, we know that that pigs are treated despicably uh, on 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 uh, pork farms. Um, not necessarily all farms, but but um, you know we've seen we've all seen the pictures of, of pigs in these metal 
styes they can't stand up or turn around and they've just got piglets feeding off of them all the time if the blood taken from from mares is used to facilitate fertility the fertility of, of, of sows that are living in these conditions then then it should be banned in my opinion mm. definitely but fewer people are also you know there are also fewer people eating bacon these days than there were uh years and years ago so maybe we don't need as much bacon maybe sows don't need to produce as many piglets as they once did and, and nature has shown us that they are capable of reproducing without mare blood yeah definitely <laughs> of course yeah um uh, you know uh, it's not a this is not a topic that i've really uh, um put myself into but I, it just my feeling is that it's it's not great uh, so it wouldn't bother me if it was completely bad. Now, of course, the the motivation for the bill is a response to this documentary that came out in, I think, early December, maybe late November, mm. showing how the blood mares, or at least some of them, are, are treated. Mm. And it was shocking. And at the time, it did seem very much like the promise of this bill would just sort of a, a logical next step because most countries don't allow this anyway so Iceland should join them and, and full stop but there is a pushback um, obviously from interested parties but also f even from uh, welfare organisations the head of the uh, animal welfare charity in Iceland saying that it's not worse than, than most animal farming and that welfare is abused in all areas of animal farming and this is true we know this to be true Um but yeah, so it's not. It's turning into a more complicated picture than it seemed at the time. I think we have to we have to we have to consider the consequences of the individual individual steps. Um, if somebody decides to go into the business of uh, keeping mares and offering those mares for uh, uh, the extraction of their blood, um, they should follow, as should everybody who um, takes on the responsibility for sentient beings mm. they should follow and ensure to upkeep the highest animal welfare standards possible if they don't then they should be criminally charged okay anybody who, who treats an animal in its care with contempt um, is in my opinion contemptible and should be criminally charged um, now i don't i don't doubt that blood can be extracted from from mares and any other animal um in a very pain-free way you know um, my dog goes to the vets and and, and uh, has blood tests and, and it's a very it's a relatively pain-free experience um but then there are the consequences of the, the the subsequent steps in that in that process you know then it goes to um facilitating fertility in pigs or, or whatever else that are treated like treated very badly um so you know yeah you can extract blood from a from a mare without it causing significant stress or distress um but it's it's also there's also a moral dilemma as, as to you know what are the next steps mm. um and then extracting industrial quantities of blood on a regular basis from pregnant mares mm. it's a, it, perhaps a little different ban it that's what i say ban it mm. unnecessary most of the world seems to think so, but the product, if we can call it that, that is being manufactured in Iceland is, is 
almost all exported and used in countries that ban its production. So ban it. Simple as that. Unnecessary. You don't need it. Well, there we go. Inca Island has got one supporter there. Uh, among many others, I know for sure. Um, in this issue. Yeah. Okay. Okay. In this issue. Um, okay. I think that's probably a good time to call it a day. Uh, we are out of time. The Week in Iceland, though, will be back with you next Monday, the 24th of January on ruv.as forward slash English, Ruv English on Facebook, through the Ruv app and your favourite podcast platform. That just leaves me to thank my guest today, Jon Simon Markusson. Thank you. Yeah, thank you as well. Uh, we finished today's programme with a nod to the time of year. The short winter day is called Skamti in Icelandic. This song is called Skamti and it's by Hips and Hubs. Bye for now. September Algjör klikkun Fólk að hósti í lóa Engin út úr húsi Nema krakkar í lögg og búa Og falla fólið fúsi Fréttir í sjónvarpi Flestar þeirra slæmar